Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Today, let me speak to the governor. Governor Gary Herbert spends one hour answering your questions. Call 801-575-8255. Live from the studios of KSL News Radio in Salt Lake City, it's Let Me Speak to the Governor. And good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us for Let Me Speak to the Governor. I am Maria Chaleos. I'm hosting the show today with Governor Gary Herbert. And Governor, we have so many things to talk about, both locally and nationally. And I know there are a lot of people who want to get their questions in. Again, the number is 575-8255, or you can text us 57500. Governor, let's start out locally and talk about the fires that are already raging across the state of Utah. Well, it's a concern. And I was down there, as you know, um, Tuesday, we had about a thousand uh, acres that were uh, involved with the fire, and now oh, I got something backwards. <laughs> Is that better? <laughs> All right, we had the microphone backwards. Uh, anyway, uh, I was down Tuesday to uh, Iron County and Parowan and uh, Brian Head, and uh, we had about a thousand acres then at the time. Looked like we we're in good shape to contain it. A lot of cooperation from all the people involved, and uh, uh, which was, I think, government at its best, by the way. But then the winds kicked up, and in the last two days, it's increased tenfold. We're now up to 11,000 acres. It's now into uh, Garfield County, uh, threatening uh, three to 400 homes there that have been evacuated, uh, summer homes and cabins, uh, et cetera. And may have uh, the ability to turn south and go into Kane County, which is a concern. I just talked with Representative Mike Noel here just a few minutes ago. He's en route to Parowan to get an update. And uh, so he's going to report back to me, our own people there. I talked to Sheriff Prestwich, uh, or excuse me, Sheriff Perkins from uh, Garfield County earlier today. Uh, so there's a concern out there. So that's the specific issue. But the general issue that I'm very concerned about is, you know, it is summer. And uh, we need to remind all of our people to enjoy the summer and some of your family vacations. But be careful out there. Whether you're driving down the road, be careful. Uh, roads will be congested. Whether you're, in fact, out there in the outdoors next to water, our rivers, our ponds, our streams, there's hazards there. And particularly because we're so hot and the moisture content is drying out rapidly, uh, because we've had a lot of moisture, we've had a lot of growth, so the volume is up, but the moisture content is going down. That's a condition for extreme fire hazard. 
And so be careful. A lot of it's just common sense. Uh, we're putting restrictions in place uh, throughout the different parts of the state, particularly southern Utah right now for five counties where you can burn. We've got uh, celebration time coming up for the 4th of July and the 24th and fireworks and firearms and open fires are a concern for us all. So, uh, again, let me just give you a couple of uh, web pages. You can go if you want to see what ought to be done, some good counsel, particularly those in rural Utah, mm-hmm. what they should be doing to have some defensible space around their home, for example, so they can put their own fire breaks in place. You can go to firewise, F-I-R-E-W-I-S-E dot org. And for the uh, for the restrictions, I have a current list of restrictions in place on how and where, time, place, and manner for fire, fireworks, etc. Then go to utahfireinfo.gov, utahfireinfo.gov, and you'll get the latest information. But have a fun summer, have a safe summer, and be cognizant of the fact we have an extreme fire hazard out there right now. Governor, today in the nation's capital, Republicans released uh, their health care legislation, and there's been quite a bit of controversy, protests um, outside of Senator McConnell's office today. People very concerned about cuts to Medicaid, and maybe you could give us your position about any proposed cuts to the Medicaid program. Well, I know that the, uh, the, the proposal just came out this morning, so I have not had a chance to really review it other than I had a couple of uh, notes in briefing. Um, one, um, I recognize that the federal government should at some time start living within its means. We've got to start balancing budgets. We're at $20 trillion, and that just rolls off the tongue, but that's a lot of money. That's just in debt, and our debt is growing, and it's growing rapidly. So live within our means is something we need to start getting back to, and uh, there's only so much government can do, and we need to be careful about that aspect of it. So when it comes to Medicaid, again, in Utah, we've been very good at balancing our budget. We're one of only 10 states, unfortunately, that have a AAA bond rating from the rating agencies on Wall Street. Um, And we are very good at making sure that people have access to jobs and job opportunities so they stay off of government assistance. Our Medicaid program works very well. We not only give you health care and help, but we also help you get training so you can get a job. And so our average length of time on Medicaid is only nine months. And we think that any program that comes out of the Congress ought to be one that's fiscally prudent and sustainable, uh, two, that doesn't put the burden upon the uh, states to pick up the slack that what we buy today we can afford tomorrow. And there ought to be flexibility for each of the states to represent their own demographics and their own unique needs. It ought to get away from this one-size-fits-all. And, for example, in Utah, uh, we're doing pretty well. We only have about 13% of the people of Utah that were uninsured, are uninsured. And half of those could if they just choose to buy us. Not that they can't afford it. They just choose not to. Mostly young invincibles that don't think they need insurance now. And uh, our health care costs in Utah are the lowest in the nation. And uh, so we have about the fifth rated highest quality health care. So we're doing pretty well. And I would ex- uh, expect that if they block granted the money to us, whatever that number is going to be, that we would find a way to spend it appropriately, uh, provide a safety net for those who are vulnerable in our in our community, help them get training and work opportunities, those who are able-bodied to have, if they're underemployed, to get better employment, if they're unemployed, to get a job. And frankly, we could come up with a better system on a state-by-state basis, I believe, 
than a one-size-fits-all that comes out of Washington, D.C. So I'm anxious to see the details. I know governors, Republican and Democrat alike, like more flexibility. And clearly, I want sustainability and fiscal prudence. Senator Mike Lee did react with Doug Wright earlier today about the proposal. And one of his concerns was, yes, states have wanted this power, but he's concerned that the states might not have the resources they need to actually fulfill the needs. What would be... Well, it depends on what they mandate to us to do. If they say to us, here's X amount of dollars, here's your proportionate amount of the money. We, the federal government, set the budget. They're, t- they're, they're really saying we're going to give you back some of the money they've taken from us as the state in the first place. And so if they say, here's how much we're going to spend on Medicaid, however you define Medicaid, spend X amount of dollars, and every state will get this proportionate share of the money. And states ought to be treated equal. Those who expanded ought not to be treated any different than those who didn't expand like Utah and vice versa. It ought to be a level playing field. And then say to the states, here's the amount of money you've got. You can augment it. You can add to it. You can do whatever you want. But that's what you're going to get. And we promise to give you that X amount of dollars for, you know, the foreseeable future. And I, there's no reason why they cannot, in fact, maintain that in my view. But they've got to pick a number. And then give the proportionate amount of money to the states and let us live within our own budgets. Some of the more liberal states will say, hey, that's not enough. But if we augment it with our own state budget, we can maybe have a more robust program if they think that's the right way to go. We in Utah probably would have a little more austere program, but uh, deal with those in ways that we think will be more effective and more efficient. For example, we've always asked for a work requirement. If you've got needs for government assistance, come on. We'll help you with whatever those needs are, including health care. But we expect you to do something in exchange for it. And if you are able-bodied, if you are unemployed, we'll get you a job. If you're underemployed, we'll get you a better job. We'll help you do that. In exchange, we'll give you some health care. That's a simple uh, common-sense approach, which has plenty of precedent even with the federal government, but certainly is the culture of Utah. And so we can make it work, and, and, and Mike, uh, Senator Lee is probably right, but it depends on the parameters they put. If they say, here's the block grant of money, you devise your own program, we'll be fine. One more topic before we get to our callers. There's been a lot of focus on replacing Congressman Jason Chaffetz, who is vacating his seat, and the special election surrounding that. Why not hold a special session to deal with some of these issues, Governor? Well, we were willing to talk about that. Again, we don't have a lot of time to waste. And so the Constitution and the statutes require me to call an an election. And it's special only because it's a different time of the year. There's nothing that should change about the process, but just it's special because of the time of the year. So the United States Constitution mandates that be a House vacancy that we have to have an election. I hope people realize that. It's not an appointment. Some people think this is and get confused. Why don't we just appoint somebody? It has to be a full-fledged election. So the policy we have on the books now is a good one. And so we wanted to mirror that. And I said to the legislature, unless you've got a better program, a better policy out there, then fine. Otherwise, there's no need to have a special session. And the proposal that came to us from the legislative leadership was, here's a new idea. Why don't we just go to convention? If somebody wins 50% plus one vote, then that becomes the nominee. And I, I thought and I said, I don't think that's good policy. You know, we've never had that kind of a thing where you eliminate a runoff. I mean, people can have a, uh, a very close election, and then we put it out to, in fact, the, the masses and let the voice of the people make the decision. This is a big deal for the 3rd District. 
and to have just a handful of people, 400, make the decision and disenfranchise 190,000 registered Republicans, I thought was bad policy. So uh, I didn't think they came up with a better approach than what we have already on the books. I have to call a special election. I'm a mandate. I'd be, uh, you know, probably derelict of my duty to not do it. And it's working very well, by the way. So uh, that's why we didn't call the special session. We couldn't come together. Now, that being said, if, in fact, the legislature feels like there's a need for clarification and they'd like to make some modifications under the current statutes for uh, for clarification purposes and add in some details, that's why we have general sessions. And I expect that will be a topic of discussion in 2018. And that uh, is a place where you can have public comment from all the stakeholders. They can come in and weigh in pros and cons on what they should do and developing better policy if that's what they're trying to do. Uh, you'll have committee hearings. Uh, again, you'll have an opportunity to have it fully vetted in not just a few hours, but in 45 days. And by the way, they tried to do that this past legislative session. They couldn't come to an agreement. But I expect they'll work extra hard this next session, and it'll be interesting to see what, in fact, bubbles up. Uh, let me just conclude by saying, by the way, we, we all should rep, uh, recognize this is a very unique situation that is never— Very rare. Uh, not only very rare, it's never happened in Utah's history. We've never had a sitting congressman ever resign his seat. We had a 1929, somebody died in office in December. They went through the complete election process the next year until somebody was elected the following November. But we've never had anybody resign. So this is kind of a surprise. We're kind of you know, exploring you know, new grounds and new territories and things. And um, uh, we're, getting, we're getting it done right. I know there's people who are upset. You know, think, well, why didn't we consult it more? But I'm the executive branch. I have to uh, execute on the law not on what we think the law should be or hope to be. And there was nothing proposed that was better than what we had on the books, so we moved ahead. And by the way, in doing so, we're going to save the taxpayers probably about a million dollars because we're going to mirror the municipal elections. It'll be less confusing, more people will participate, and we're going to save the taxpayers a grundle of money. And you believe that with this process there's a... um there's no concern over separation of powers. No, we hear the common, uh, the lament, uh, the separation of powers. And again, I respect and, and applaud the legislature in trying to make sure they protect their powers and their rights under the Constitution, the statutes as the legislative branch. But we also, in the executive branch, have that same kind of passion for protecting our rights as the executive branch. And it's a noble cause. We may have differences of opinion. That's okay. Uh, but we both are making sure that our rights are protected as per the Constitution, not only the United States, but Utah Constitution and the statutes we currently have on the books. And you're listening to Let Me Speak to the Governor. We're going to take a break, come back with your calls. The number to call, 575-8255. You can also text us at 57500. What's your question for Governor Herbert? Call 801-575-8255. This is Let Me Speak to the Governor. And thank you for joining us for Let Me Speak to the Governor. We're going to take our first caller, and that is Marcy in Salt Lake City. And good afternoon, Marcy. What is your question for the Governor? So my question is, the, the Wasatch Front seems to be doing great, but what are you doing in rural Utah? Well, thank you. That's a great question, because we are doing great on the Wasatch Front. And in some parts of rural Utah, we're doing well, too, as we define rural Utah. Some of our more populated areas, uh, some of the areas of rural Utah are struggling. For example, out in the basin, with the drop in price of energy, they are struggling and have a 10% unemployment rate, where the overall statewide average is 3.1%. 
So uh, we're very concerned. I don't know if you knew this, but I, in my State of the State address uh, this past January, I, in fact, addressed this very issue and uh, announced a, a new uh, charge for us as a state to create 25,000 jobs in rural Utah. I've asked the lieutenant governor, who is my appointee to the Governor's Rural Partnership Board, to in fact take on that responsibility of getting around to the counties and making sure that we have plans in place in concert with the rural leadership and say, what can we do in you know this county to help increase economic opportunity? Clearly, the marketplace is dynamic and it's changing. Where we used to have 10 farms, now we have one. So the agricultural aspect of this is changing dramatically. And uh, so we have, in fact, in place, and I, I'll just refer you to a web page we've got called 25kjobs.com, 25kjobs.com, referencing our 25,000 jobs in, in really 25 counties. And we're having the lieutenant governor go around meet with the local uh uh, folks and get the business and civic leaders and others that are concerned about this issue. And there's a calendar. Uh, for example, I've got a copy of it in front of me. It starts on July 17th in Box Elder and Cash counties, August the 2nd, Beaver, Washington, August 9th, Emory Carbon, and so on, goes through and finishes up on September 26th in Paiute and Wayne counties. But you go to this webpage and you can see the calendar and the dates and locations, and we invite anybody and everybody to show up and see uh, what is your concerns, what are your suggestions, what are your recommendations, what we can do to help the local communities to help themselves economically. It's a big concern for me, and I, I don't think Utah is healthy unless all 29 counties and all 243 cities are healthy. All right, Marcy, thanks so much for your call. Let's take a call from Clark now. He's next on the line. And, Clark, uh, what is your question for the governor today? Uh, yes, Governor. I had a question, and, and it's kind of evolved since listening to you, but uh, it specifically it relates to uh, cannabis in Utah. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm curious, um, after listening to your previous comments, why not on large issues like this, why don't we just throw it out to the public vote and let the people speak for the state? It sounds like that's pretty important to you on the previous issues. Well, there is a process to do that. and There are probably people talking about that right now. It's a, called an initiative petition. Uh, you can create law two ways, and that's the legislature or the people themselves by initiative petition can go out there, get enough signatures, and actually put it out there for a vote. The legislature can't do that. There's not a mechanism that allows them to do that. They could have an opinion, I guess, vote, but nothing that would be binding in law. Uh, what we have done, as you already know, I'm sure, Clark, is we've already authorized and legalized uh, cannabis use for those who have seizures. Uh, I have a sister that has a daughter that, in fact, uh, uses this to help with her medicinal needs. That's a narrow scope, a narrow area, but something that uh, the legislature has passed. We've also have complained loud and long, and I think justifiably so, that we ought to, in fact, uh, uh, have the federal government step up and allow for authorization, take this off the Schedule One list, and do the necessary research that will tell us what the science behind this is, not just anecdotal story. And clearly the anecdotal story says there may be something here that we ought to, at least on the medicinal side, uh, take a look at. 
And so at least on that aspect, we are actually doing and moving towards having some more research done on uh, cannabis from a, a medical standpoint as a controlled substance here in the state of Utah. And I would support that once we know the science and have uh, the ability to have it prescribed by a doctor, uh, distributed you know, by a pharmacist, and not have self-medication. On the recreational side, I have talked with uh, Governor Hickenlooper in Colorado. Uh, he has been very cautionary about this issue, and of course, they've embraced recreational marijuana. He, he's uh, he's not uh, 100% for it. He's not 100% against it, but he says the jury's still out on whether this is a good thing or not. So, uh, the idea of having people uh, use marijuana and be somewhat high driving behind the automobile of a car is pause uh, gives us pause and concern. So that's probably the last element, but we ought to do the research to see, at least on the medicinal side, if it can help people. Is there any, uh, has there been any talk about the industry of hemp? I know like the state of Washington is currently looking at facilities to produce hemp into a building material. Mm-hmm. Since there aren't any you know, facilities in, in the United States, maybe that could be a uh, industry for rural Utah. It could be. Uh, we actually, I've met with some people that wanted to in, uh, get involved in hemp. They were talking about going back to the old hemp rope. I don't know if a hemp rope is as strong and sturdy as nylon and some of the other materials we have out there. But again, there's probably legitimate legal purposes for hemp out there that uh, the marketplace would allow. And if we've got restrictions on that, I don't think anybody's going to be smoking a rope. But uh, uh, you know, I, that's something we certainly could look into. I, I don't know of any demand out there, but if there's a niche in the marketplace, the marketplace will probably find it. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Clark. All right, Clark, thanks for your call today. Uh, before we get to the bottom of the hour news, we did have a texter ask the question. I thought this was a joke at first, but I understand it's not a joke, Governor. The question was, did Travis Pastrana invite you to do a backflip on a dirt bike at the Nitro Circus World <laughs> Games press conference? <laughs> you know, uh, he not only invited me, but he showed me how to do a front flip, which is much more difficult, and the apparatus they used mm-hmm. to do a front, front flip on a motorcycle. And uh, maybe the listeners don't know this, but last year when we held the first inaugural Nitro uh, World Competition, uh, the first time in history somebody did a double front flip off a motorcycle, first time in history in competition, was here at Rice-Eccles Stadium last year. So I expect we might see some more of that. The track setup is really interesting, and Travis has broken about every bone in his body. Uh, we compared his uh, sporting experience to mine playing tennis. I said, occasionally I'll get a sunburn and a blister. <laughs> He's broken about every bone in his body. So you didn't take him up on the front uh, no, flip, obviously. I'm a little bit old for that. And, uh, but we had a good time. I would encourage, boy, if everybody has, uh, if you have an opportunity to score a couple of tickets to go up to Rice Eccles Stadium this weekend and see these world uh, Nitro World Competition games, it's the only place it happens in the world. We have people from all over the world, from Europe, from Japan, from Australia, uh, a number of Americans here. It's going to be spectacular, and they'll be doing things that you, uh, most of us believe is that's just impossible. You cannot do that. And so it's going to be a fun event, and uh, we had 28,000 here last year, uh, and it's an inaugural event. I think we'll have more than that this year. So get some tickets. Have a great family summer evening up at Rice-Eccles Stadium watching the Nitro World Competition Games, Utah, the state of sport. There you go. Mm-hmm. And we're going to break for the bottom of the hour news. We'll be right back with Let Me Speak to the Governor, the number to call 578255 if you'd like to get your question in. Reach out to Governor Herbert. Text 57500 or call him at 801 575 8255. It's Let Me Speak to the Governor. 
And thank you for joining us for Let Me Speak to the Governor. I am Maria Shaleos, along with Governor Gary Herbert, and we're going to take a call from Leroy in Salt Lake City. And Leroy, what is your question for the governor? I I just want to first thank the governor for everything he's doing for Utah. Uh, Governor, I have a quick question on immigration. Will you be pushing for more immigration reform, um, I guess, to helping families uh, not be broken apart? Uh, Families who come to the country, this country and this great state to, you know, seek the American dream and and do better for their families. It's a difficult issue, uh, Leroy, and you know this probably as well as anybody, I would expect. Um, uh, We've tried to find what we call a kind of a compassionate, conservative approach on a state right basis. And we had laws that were passed which allowed uh, uh, illegal or undocumented aliens to come out of the shadows, be productive workers, and unless and until the federal government would do something about it. Uh, We went to court. We lost. The court was very clear in saying this is a federal issue and the states have nothing to say about this, really. And so uh, we're kind of at a quandary as we see the arguing back and forth in Washington, D.C., as far as how to address the issue. And everybody seems to agree we should secure the border. Uh, I remember talking with President Obama about this very issue specifically when he was here. And uh, we talked. he talked about the fence, and we certainly President Trump's talked about building a wall and really securing the borders. What nobody seems to be talking about, though, is the gate. Uh, it's not just the fence, but it's the gates. How do you come into this country? And how do we, in fact, enable people to come in here and be productive members of our society, whether they're citizens or not? I grew up in an era when we had a lot of uh, workers that came from south of the border, worked in our orchards, picked fruit, did things on the farm, and then they would uh, go back home. The gate is broken. It's not just a wall or a fence. We've got to fix the gate, I think, if we're going to fix this problem. That being said, again, the federal government, they've got to come together on some kind of a program which allows uh, people to uh, come into the country in an orderly fashion. And we need to hold the rule of law. That's a federal government responsibility on securing the borders and public safety issues. And uh, what we're doing, uh, what we're doing now, seems to me just kicking the can down the road, which is causing confusion. Which does, in fact, it's kind of like the shifting sands. We don't know what the footing we're going to be standing on uh, tomorrow, let alone today. So. Uh, We've got to get our congressional delegation to come together on this and see what we can do to keep, in fact, the rule of law and understand the humanity that's involved in this issue. People are coming here because they want to come to America where there's opportunity. We understand that. But we've got to have it done in an orderly fashion. Thank you, sir. All right, Leroy, thanks for your call. One of our texters asking, Governor, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, why there is no usury law in Utah? Is it usury or usury? Usury having to do with uh, interest on on money, I assume that's what they're talking about. And some of our payday loan companies, I think, is the ones that get in the crosshairs of that. And it's the combination of what's a free market allowed to do. If you want to borrow money from me, you and I can, you know, I can lend you. Well, maybe it'd be the other way around. If you wanted to lend me a hundred dollars, <laughs> if how, I had a hundred dollars, how much? Lend you, right? Well, I figure you're the one that does. Uh, and if you loan me a hundred dollars, what would you charge me for the use of that money? Mm-hmm. That's usury. And you might say, hey. Uh, no wonder I don't know what it is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it might be, you know, we think in terms of mortgage money today at 4%. 
But on some of these short-term high-risk loans, because I didn't go to the bank, I probably have to borrow from you because that bank won't loan me the money. There's a high risk, and so you're going to charge a higher interest rate. And some of these areas uh, that loan money on high risk, you know, pay me back in a week or two weeks, the annualized interest rate could be two or 300%. And that's what causes people concern. So the debate is how much is is enough and too much. Uh, that's uh, probably opinion versus the free market, which said between consenting people here as far as our business transactions, what we agree to ought to be okay. And why is the government sticking their nose in it? It's been a, approached on a number of different occasions. The legislature has not passed any law. And that's the reason why we don't have any usury law. We just are letting the free market. There are some parameters out there, but the marketplace is uh, being dictated by the marketplace. All right. Let's take a call from Al in Provo. Hi, Al. Hi there, Maria, and good afternoon, Governor. Hi, Al. Anyhow, it's good to talk to you. Anyhow, with the recent news of the fires dominating the news, I just want to ask you if you had any update on the Bears Ears scale back. Is that more or less kind of a done deal, or will you expect more progress? And with the fire danger, I see the two topics kind of going hand in hand. I just think Utah to have better oversight, you know, if it's Utah land. What are your thoughts? Well, the public land management is a big issue, and I, and, and the lack of good management uh, is a, a big issue for the fires, because I can tell you, having visited the area uh, down in Brinehead and, and flown around uh, Cedar Breaks and the public lands down there, the the fact that we have so much dead I mean, about 30% of the forest are beetle kill that we can't spray for and we cannot harvest. We had a lawsuit brought against the state here in the late 90s that said you cannot harvest these trees. They, they stopped the logging industry. And what that's done is allowed the beetles to grow and prosper. And so that uh, 30% in the area where we have the fire now, which has made it very difficult to contain. And if, as you fly over it, as I have done in other parts of that area, nearly 50% of all the trees are dead. I mean, it's just a, a fire waiting to happen. And that's just because of bad management of our public lands, uh, particularly by the federal government and a court case that uh, ended up uh, and in hindsight, being very, very bad for the health of the forest. So that being said, you know, we want to find, we ought to find ways to come together and have good husbandry of our forests and management of our public lands to its optimal benefit. The Bears Ears is one of protection of uh, antiquities and artifacts. And under the Antiquities Act, there certainly is the right of the president to, in fact, identify. And it says that the smallest area possible compatible to protect the objects that need protection. So what we've had is not a use of the Antiquities Act by presidents lately. It's been an abuse. And that doesn't mean we don't have need of protection. But the BLM itself, of which all these lands are federally owned and controlled under the BLM, they have the ability to, in fact, manage it and put protections in place. The monument is just one additional tool, but you can have conservation areas, recreation areas, and and that needs to be protected in some form or fashion. It's really only about two things. What is the vehicle to provide the protection, just the BLM alone, or a monument, or anything in between? Uh, And two, what is the size and scope? And so I think uh, Secretary Zinke's actually taking a very good approach. He's getting input from all the stakeholders and saying, I believe it should be shrunk after having visited there, but that doesn't mean we should eliminate protections for the area. And last but not least, he's also heard the Native Americans say, we want to have more say about the management of those uh, lands which we consider sacred. And so he said, you know, the only way we can do that is do something legislatively which empowers the Native Americans, particularly the Navajos down there, to do that. 
So I think he's trying to thread the needle in a very uh, methodical, common sense way. And we'll have to wait and see what his recommendations uh, are going to be as far as size and scope. But I think you're going to find protections continue to be on that BLM land in one form or another and enhanced opportunities for the Native Americans to have a say in the management of those lands. Okay. Thank you, Governor. Thank you, Al. And the number to call to be part of the program, 575-8255. Call and ask your question. One of our texters asking, Governor, when we're going to get rid of daylight saving time. <laughs> you know, it seems to come up every year. It's a love-hate relationship. Yeah. it's uh, For those of us who like the, the summer nights and, and the ballpark, and uh, for me, an opportunity to go watch my grandkids play baseball and other activities, we like those uh, daylight hours. Uh, for some, uh, they just soon have them in the morning. And uh, it comes up every year as a proposal. Uh, I think the polling shows that probably a small majority like it the way it is. Some would like it just to stay, either one or the other. Daylight savings or no daylight savings don't change. And uh, so I expect that the upcoming legislative session will be talked about again. We're only one, uh, well, let's see, Arizona is only one of the Continental 48 that has done away with daylight savings. I think Hawaii may not have it either, but the Continental 48, Arizona is the only one that does not have it. So we'd be kind of an outlier if we changed. But, uh, you know, uh, that's something that would have to be done legislatively. It'd be very interesting to see how many times this has come up before the legislature, what, once a year for how many years? (laughs) People tend to be passionate about it on either side of the issue. And uh, I've learned to adapt, and so I'm okay with it. But, uh, again, if if the majority of the people want to change the legislation, there's a process, and I'm sure there's some legislator willing to carry the bill. And if you'd like to be part of the program, ask your question, the number 575-8255, or you can text us at 57500. We'll be right back with more on Let Me Speak to the Governor. What's your question for Governor Herbert? Call 801-575-8255. This is Let Me Speak to the Governor. And thanks for joining us for Let Me Speak to the Governor. 57500, you can text your questions as well. That's the number for that. Let's take a call now from Leon in Salt Lake City. And good afternoon, Leon. What is your question for the governor today? Well, it's a how question. How has the alcohol law impacted tourism? None at all. Uh, I can tell you that as we look at our tourism numbers, at least to date, uh, they're up. Uh, we're just down at Zion uh, National Park. Uh, they're estimating uh, 500,000 additional visitors this year above last year's record numbers. Moab, bursting at the seams. Uh, there are just a lot of people coming to Utah for obvious reasons. And uh, the DUI law, which really, uh, although we we have a legislation passed, doesn't take effect until uh, December 30th of 2018. Uh, interesting enough, though, we've heard from our law enforcement people that DUIs actually are down, which is kind of an interesting thing. But uh, we don't see this uh, discussion on 0.05, which is what you're talking about, I expect, having any negative impact on our tourism and travel. In spite of the fact we know that there are groups out there trying to make it happen. They're actually going out and telling people, don't come to Utah. Uh, distorting, I think, what the proposals that we have, unfortunately, but nevertheless, it doesn't seem to have any negative effect on our tourism and travel. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. I think people like Utah, what there is to offer. They like to come with their families. There's great vistas and venues, wonderful people, friendly, and it's a very safe place to be. So I think our tourism travel is going to continue to accelerate. Our challenge is how do we accommodate it? 
frankly. Uh, we, we've talked about our national parks and now our state parks, and, and we are kind of loving them to death is a phrase that we hear. So uh, we're going to have to probably take some hard uh, looks at how we can accommodate the increasing tourism and travel uh, that's occurring in our great state. We have wonderful water. We do, and we need to make sure that we have wonderful air and water, and so our environmental issues are real, and uh, we have a significant effort to protect our environment. We're trying to be very good stewards of the earth, and that's working, by the way, and all of us, every one of the 3.1 Utahns, uh, 3.1 million Utahns have a role to play in that effort. So feel good about the trend. Uh, We're certainly not perfect. Uh, Room for improvement out there, but I think we're doing some really good things, Leon. Well, there's plenty to keep you busy, Governor. Yes, there is that. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for your call today. Governor, maybe give us an update on what revisions are planned for the law. You mentioned it doesn't go into effect until 2018. Have you seen much work on it? Well, they're having hearings now, and I think those hearings will continue as we have interim study opportunities with our committees. I think everybody agrees there are probably some opportunities to tweak it here. Uh, We think there's misinformation out there, which is always the challenge of new pieces of legislation. Do we make sure that uh, what is being described is accurate? Uh, For example, Colorado, you know, we've used them as kind of the place where, you know, we have recreational marijuana, a pretty liberal uh, uh, state in that regard. But yet they have a 0.05 limitation on alcohol content, too. They have a two-tier penalty system. But we're not the first ones to be looking at 0.05. So there might be some tweaking to look at, uh, and I think people want to understand it better. And uh, the good news is we have a year and a half to get it right. Uh, We may have a special session if we think it's timely enough to do it. I'm sure that we'll be addressing it in the next upcoming session. And it does appear that there's some wiggle room and some latitude. But the intent here is to not stop or inhibit anybody's uh, drinking habits. But we're just saying do not get behind an automobile if you've had uh, too much to drink. And that's really the message. It's not about drinking. It's about drinking and driving. One of our texters asking if you're still wanting to take back all public lands to Utah. And if so, how would you plan to pay for the care of these lands? Well, I don't think anybody's proposing... uh, privatizing. Most people think that for some reason the state of Utah wants to privatize the land. That's just a myth. Uh, In fact, we have legislation in place that says that if any land was privatized, that the bulk of that money that comes off of that land, 95%, goes back to the federal government. So there's no motivation to privatize. All that uh, we're trying to do is make sure that, one, our voice is heard. We do understand our backyard as well as anybody, if not better than most anybody. And we ought, want to optimize them. We understand on the BLM's charter, for example, it's a multiple use. It's not just farming. It's not just agriculture. It's not just tourism and travel. It's not just energy. It's not extraction only. It's a multiple use in a balanced, optimal approach. And so uh, in our history, we've never privatized really any land ever. Uh, we've had some trades that have gone on where we've tried to make uh, common sense trades with the federal government and private lands, and that happens. People sometimes get confused with our school trust lands, which are a different animal out there altogether that sometimes are developed and privatized. But we've actually added to the inventory. Uh, I'm just thinking the Wilcox Ranch, for example, down in Range Creek and, and by Nine Mile Canyon in Carbon County. That's private land, which the state of Utah stepped up and bought the developmental rights, why? To preserve some of the artifacts and the ancient Native American ruins which were found there on private land. 
taken away the ability to develop it. So we've added to the inventory of uh, opportunities for research and tourism and travel, hiking, those kind of things. So we've been pretty responsible about this. I think we are just a little bit tired of the federal government mismanaging the lands. I just thought through talking about the the bark beetle where we've lost a lumber industry and economic opportunity in rural Utah, lost our forest management. We don't have fire breaks. We have too much cheat grass, which burns like a fuse and is a, a significant fire hazard. Those are all management things that could be done better. And uh, we think we know how to do it and could do it better. Uh, but we ought to at least cooperate with the federal government so that they do it better. And that's our intent. We have uh, David on the line from Centerville. David, hi, what's your question? Hi, uh, Governor, my question is, what do you plan to do with the quagga mussels in our lakes and streams? Well, it's a challenge. You know, it's been imported from other parts of the country, and people bring their boats here and dip them into Lake Powell, and if they bring a quagga mussel, next thing you know, we've got a problem out there. So we have rules and laws in place where boats have to be sprayed. They have to be, in fact, inspected so that we don't have quagga mussel infestation that uh, goes to other water areas. But it's a significant concern. Our Department of Natural Resources, our legislator, have passed legislation mandating and requiring things to be inspected. If you're suspected of having a quasi muscle problem, uh, whether that be at Lake Powell, whether that's at Deer Creek Reservoir, whether that's up at Bear Lake, uh, you know, we're monitoring this very closely, and hopefully we can contain it. It's it's a it's a major problem. And um, those little suckers get out there and uh, attach to boats and transfer from one water body to another body with our boats. So um, uh, not many people know about it. I'm impressed, uh, David, that you are versed in it. But we're, we certainly are uh, cognizant of the problem. David, thanks for your call today. One of our texters asking uh, if we'll ever see a mandatory helmet law here in the state of Utah. And how about lane splitting for motorcycles? You know, uh, traffic congestion and uh, what we can do to move people up and down the roads is going to become a more uh, acute issue. We are spending hundreds of millions of dollars uh, on transportation. We've spent uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on mass transportation, whether it be our our bus rapid transit, our bus uh, system, our light rail, our heavy rail front runner. And we'll spend a lot more yet to come as we have more congestion here and more density, uh, particularly along the Wasatch Front. Uh, so... How we can move people in a better, more efficient way, uh, split uh, uh, lanes is certainly something that's been done uh, in other parts of the country. Uh, our HOV lane is something that we've copied, which has been used in other places, and it's worked to some uh, effect here, not probably as well as some people would like. But we just took out a billion-dollar bond, which we'll spend over the next four years, so approximately $250 million a year to, in fact, find the hot spots in the areas that need, in fact, some uh, direct attention. And um, as we are now the fastest-growing state in America, this idea of population growth, it impacts all aspects of our life, you know, whether it be clouded cl- classrooms and education, whether it be more demand on government services, uh, crowding in our, our jails, even though our, our uh, crime rate is way lower than the national average, even if it just stays the same, we'll have more need for bed space and those challenging issues. And certainly the roads and highways and byways, that's where we see it and we feel it every day at rush hour. So that's a major issue that we're dealing with, and that's why the billion-dollar bond. It's not where we're sitting back. We're trying to tackle it head-on 
and see if we can't find better ways to maintain our roads, to build our roads, and to find different ways maybe to, in fact, maybe even alternate routes where you, in fact, have one-way direction at certain times of the day and reverse it for the the 5 o'clock rush hour. So all those things are on the table. We've got great cooperation with our legislature. They understand our local government people, certainly our Department of Transportation. And uh, I expect we're going to – it'll be a top-of-mind issue for the next number of years. Governor, the time flies. It That's does, it for always. our program. Thanks so much for joining us again this month. Great to be with you. And you've been listening to Let Me Speak to the Governor on KSL News Radio.